1 Kings 16, we're going to break in at verse 29 and read into chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 16. We'll commence reading verse 29. Let's all hear the Lord's word. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. But it came to pass as if it had been a light thing. Lost my place there. The screen changed on me. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal and the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hiel, the Bethelite, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof, and Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof, and his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Kareth, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Kareth, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And we trust that God will bless that reading of his word to our hearts for his name's sake. Could you bow your head with me just for a moment? Let's ask the Lord for his help. Let's all pray. Gracious God and Father in heaven, it's, it's time now to preach the word and to listen to the word. We pray for the Spirit's grace, enabling to do that in a way that honors thee. We pray that thine own spirit would be the real preacher here this morning, bringing that word home with life-changing power, with conviction, with assurance. May this be, Lord, a word in season for thy people and a help on their journey to glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. The 19th century minister 
Scottish Presbyterian, by the way, Alexander White said of Elijah that he, I quote now, towers up like a mountain in Gilead above all the other prophets. He was a Mount Sinai of a man with a heart like a thunderstorm. Another commentator describes him as the Colossus among ordinary men who dwarfs us all. Certainly it's true that there is a grandeur, a mysteriousness, even we could say an unearthliness about Elijah that is all his own. He appears on the scene of time out of nowhere. It is usually the case that God's word gives us some indication of a prophet's lineage when he's introduced in scripture, but, but not so with Elijah. There's not a word said about his background. Matthew Henry says that, I quote, Elijah drops, so to speak, out of the clouds. We know nothing of his father, of his mother, except that what we may glean about them when they named him, Elijah, my God is Jehovah. While we know next to nothing about his earthly life and his upbringing, there is one thing we can be sure of. God was preparing Elijah all through those silent years for that day when he would come suddenly, suddenly appear and commence the work that the Lord had set him apart to do. Never forget that every single experience through which the Lord leads us we must view it as a preparation for some further work that he has for us to do. So waiting time is never a wasted time. What's particularly striking about this prophet is that while, while he had a heavenly name, Elijah certainly had a very human nature. Some of the old Jewish rabbis believe that Elijah was an angel that God sent down from heaven. But when you read what James had to say about him, you realize that Elijah was a man, he says, subject to like passions as we are. Now that statement right there in light of what he actually, we actually read of him in First Kings would indicate that not only was he a, a man, but he was a man of strong passion, very emotional character. You find him at Mount Carmel, for instance, and there he is subject to the passion of scorn and contempt as he mocks those false prophets, as well as the passion of fervent prayer. Outrunning Ahab's chariot to the entrance of Jezreel, you find Elijah full of the passion of, of joy and exaltation. Not long after that, you find him sitting under a juniper tree full of the passion of sadness and dejection and despair, not wanting to live another day. He was a man with a nature just like ours. I would submit to you that it was well and good that Elijah was such a passionate man. As a man of strong passions, he was more fit to deal with the, the bold and the daring wickedness of his own day. 
It's a wonderful thing how God takes men and suits them for the work that he has designed for them to do. Again, as Matthew Henry puts it, rough spirits are called to rough services. The, the Protestant Reformation comes to mind, that Reformation of the 16th century. It, it needed a strong, rough, bullheaded man like Martin Luther. That's the fact of the matter. Anything less than that, at least as far as Germany was concerned, it wasn't going to work. Needed a Luther. Perhaps, perhaps if it had been left up to us, we would not have picked Elijah to be the reformer in that day. If we knew him, we might have said, well, he's just too hot-headed. Or he's too explosive, too moody. He was explosive. He was hot-headed. He was moody. But God knew that's what the hour needed, so he put his hand upon this rough character from the mountains of Gilead. One of the most valuable lessons that you will learn from a study of this man's life is to see just what the grace of God can do in and through the lives of any of his people, including you. For any Christian worker who feels the sphere of service in which God has placed him or her is hard, just look at what God did through Elijah. If, if you will read this man's story with open eyes and with an open heart, you'll surely find encouragement for your particular work, your particular ministry, whether that be at the job, in the church, at the home with the family. The Lord's well able to give you all the grace that you would ever need to do that work. The times the Lord's people are tempted when in those difficult situations to say with Elijah, I only am left. And there's this encouragement, therefore, from the story of Elijah for them. And then there are others who, whose patience is severely tried because there's the lack. There's so few results from all the work and the praying that they put into it and their labors for, before God. And here again, they'll find help for their own soul if they will see that God enabled Elijah to patiently endure. Even when we find him in the midst of that fainting fit under the juniper tree saying, Lord, take me. I just want to go home. The scene I want us to fasten our eyes on this morning is this one where we find Elijah dwelling beside the brook Kareth. He had suddenly appeared one day at Ahab's court, out of nowhere, with a message from God about a drought. And then, just as suddenly as he appears, he suddenly disappears. It is where God sent Elijah, and the lessons that he needed to learn while dwelling by that brook Kareth. So I want to say a few things to you about this Lord's Day morning. Lessons to be learned when sitting by a drying brook is my theme. Lessons to be learned when sitting 
by a drying brook. God needed to teach Elijah important lessons about the life of faith and the life of usefulness in his work. And, and so he sent him to dwell beside a, a brook that eventually ran dry. And it is there that he and we must learn some crucial lessons about the life of faith and usefulness in God's work. Note with me in the first place this morning that God sends his servants to sit beside a drying brook so that they might learn the importance of following the Lord one step at a time. That they might learn the importance of following the Lord one step at a time. The reason Elijah appeared before Ahab was because God had told him to do such. When he says to Ahab in verse 1, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, he's making it very clear that he was there on a divine errand. God said, Go tell Ahab this, and Elijah in obedience went. But now note the end of verse 2. Now note verse 2, please. And the word of the Lord came unto him. Elijah had faithfully discharged his commission to Ahab. And here we find giving the Lord, the Lord giving him new guidance to his servant. What does that show us? It shows us that we must, as servants, take one step at a time. You see, it's obvious from the way this is falling out in Scripture that the Lord did not tell Elijah what he was to do after telling Ahab about this drought that's coming. Didn't give him any idea. He just said, you go do it. You appear before Ahab and... Elijah went. God did not reveal his will about the next step that he was to take until after he had obeyed the first set of directions. I have to believe that he was wondering, I know I would have, what am I going to do next? But that wasn't to be a concern of his. He was simply to obey God, go as far as he could go and leave God to make known what he should do next. God leads step by step. And that is a fundamental lesson to a walk of faith. One day at a time. One step at a time. And you know, brothers and sisters, it's got, it's got to be that way. Our life in this world is to be lived by faith. The just shall live by faith. They'll walk by faith. It must be lived this way, faith in God and faith in his word. But where is the faith if we get all the directions up front? Where is it? It just isn't God's way to reveal to us the whole course of our lives, but rather he gives us enough light to go one step at a time. This is a hard lesson. A hard lesson to learn. A hard lesson to carry out because the flesh wants to go through life knowing it all. It wants to go through life on feelings and human reasoning. The unbelief that is 
in all of us wants to know everything up front because unbelief does not like surprises. We become fearful of the unknown. It can't abide this idea of having to wait on the Lord. Unbelief can't, and unbelief can't abide the idea of being so dependent upon the Lord's leading. And especially is that the case when a man's natural temperament, just like Elijah, is so full of energy and zeal. He was just a man who couldn't sit still. That's just not his nature. He wants to be up and doing. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is still in God's word. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not, lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways, in all thy paths, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy steps, thy path, thy way, thy road. Had Elijah leaned on his own understanding, and I imagine his own feelings, I think the last thing he would have done would have been to hide himself by the brook Kareth. It was so against his nature to be tucked away somewhere hiding. He was very bold and out there, wanting to be involved. But God said, no, I want you there. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. What, what would you have felt like after delivering this message from God to Ahab? God sent me with a message. There's going to be a drought in the land. Had Elijah followed his own instincts, I, I imagine he would have begun a preaching tour throughout the villages and towns of Samaria. He would have felt that it's his bounden duty to do everything in his power to awaken these people to see their sin and the judgment that God was sending because of their sin. I, I, I have no doubt that Elijah was just burning inside to tear down those idols that had been erected to Baal and Ashtaroth. But the time was not yet for that. That was the very thing that God didn't want him to do. God was setting Elijah aside for a time to give his message time to work, to get the response from the people, to see whether it'd be at the end of a drought. And the word of the Lord, if we are obedient to it, will work while we are sitting beside our drying rooks. The word of the Lord will not return to him void. It will accomplish the very thing that God sent it to do. Even when we're tucked away somewhere. And Elijah himself was to hear God's word and God's wisdom speak to him. That was going to happen, but it was going to be one step of a time. It's a lesson, you, you know, it's taught in God's word, so many, both by pattern and by precept, this, this one step at a time matter, but how often it's one that we forget. The Lord only shows us one step at a time. And then the next step he asks us to take by faith. But, you know, the fact is we've often said, in one way or another, but, but if I take this step, 
it's going to present problems for me or my family. And then what am I going to do if I do this? And those problems come up. Well, the only answer that you're usually going to receive from the Lord is you, you just take the step and trust me. That's what the Lord wants all along. It's, it's like every time the Lord brings these difficult situations into our lives, he's simply saying, I want you to trust me. Just trust me. That's what he's after. And that taking one step at a time without knowing what the next step is going to be can be very, very difficult. Elijah took the step to which he was led, delivered the message as he was told, and then, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, get thee hence, hide thyself by the brook Kareth. You see, folks, God's rule is always to reward obedience to revelations of his word with new ones. To put it negatively, God doesn't grant fresh guidance from his word if what he has already revealed to you hasn't been done. Elijah couldn't have heard the second command until he obeyed the first command. The more we obey the things he tells us to do in his word, the more he will reveal himself to us and the more we will know of his will and the next step we are to take. We must learn to trust God absolutely and to do that one step at a time. Second thought this morning, as we consider again this passage, God sends his servants to sit beside a drying brook for their own protection. It's true that Elijah's life was in danger from Ahab. We, we know that from the accounts. As the drought started taking its toll upon the land, Ahab sent down his army, or a, a, a platoon, so to speak, to hunt down the man whom he thought was responsible for all the trouble that was in the land. But Elijah, he was in danger from another quarter. Not from without, but from within. I'm talking now about a danger that's very near all of us that can really get in the way of our service and our fellowship with the Lord, our usefulness, and that is the danger of pride. He had stood firm before Ahab. According to his prayer, God had shut the heavens. I can assure you that Elijah was a ripe candidate for proud self-confidence. Did not the Apostle Paul tell us that there was given to him a thorn in the flesh to humble him because of all the exceeding revelations he had from the Lord? So he wouldn't get proud about it. If Paul the Apostle had this danger of getting proud about his experiences, spiritual experiences, surely Elijah would have been one. So God had to set him aside for three years to humble him and to prepare him for even greater honor than he'd ever had before. 
this volcanic, passionate Elijah, he was he was right at home when he was on Mount Carmel and, and facing the 450 prophets of Baal and, and calling down fire from heaven. That man was in his element, no doubt about it. But to dwell in solitude for three years and be fed by ravens, a bird that was ceremonially unclean, unclean according to the law of Moses, would have been anything but being in his element. God was going to use this three-year experience of severe self-discipline and of learning to completely depend upon the Lord for even his daily food, bread and water, so to speak, to bring it about. You see, Elijah had to learn to humbly submit his will to the will of God before he could ever experience the fire of Mount Carmel, the usefulness of Mount Carmel. The power of God falling down on Mount Carmel. We want to see the fire fall. Sometimes the Lord just has to do a good work of humbling us before we'll have that privilege of seeing the fire fall. That my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Humble themselves, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That humbling is so critical to usefulness. We need to learn the lesson and learn it well. That The Christian the Lord really uses to any great degree has got to be humbled and brought to see his own bankruptcy. Yes, we, we can believe all that in our heads and we can confess it with our mouths that we're nothing. And it's true, we're nothing. But that does not mean that we've been humbled before the Lord in our heart of hearts. And so God will set us aside and keep us out of public view and usefulness until we really learn our own nothingness and utter dependence on the Lord. There's no better way of bringing a man down than by taking him suddenly out of a sphere of service where he begins to think himself essential, important, and teaching him that he is not at all necessary to God's plan. The third and final thought, a lesson we need to learn when we're sitting beside a drying brook. God sends his servants to sit beside a drying brook to teach vital lessons about the life of faith. Try to imagine yourself sitting down there with Elijah by that brook and you watch it dry up more and more every day. It could be likened to so many believers when they've had to see many things they hold precious ebb away before their eyes. I watched my wife ebb away. Last year, particularly so. Something very precious. But the life the brightness slowly ebbs away. 
John the Baptist experienced the drying brook of ebbing popularity. He, he, was, he was all the talk until Jesus appeared. Others have experienced the drying brook of failing health. Getting weaker and weaker. Even that failing health that comes with age. But you just can't do the things that you used to do and want to do. The strength is not there. Or a failing prosperity. Finances are dwindling. The outgoes exceeding the income. And what am I going to do, Lord? How am I going to cope? Well, let's ask the question. What did Elijah do as he sits there and he watches that brook go down lower and lower and lower? What did he do? He stayed where the Lord had placed him. That's what he did. It was at Kareth that God promised to supply his needs. Verse 4, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there, there at Kareth. Nowhere else, there. So Elijah, believing that, refused to panic and to run away from the Lord's will, even as the brook dried up. He didn't try to figure it out and lean on his own. I better go look for some water because this book's going to be gone there long. He waited on the Lord and trusted this promise. God sent me here. That's it. That was his command on me. And until he tells me to go somewhere else, it is here I'm going to stay. God had promised, you know, yep, I'm going to send a drought, but it's also going to be by your prayer that the heavens are going to be opened again. So there was this promise of, we might call them showers of blessing. So what should we do when we're sitting by our drying brook? And you can just put in the blank whatever your drying brook might be. What is it? What are we to do? Well, we do what Elijah did. Do not, whatever you do, do not let Satan persuade you that God has forsaken you because the brook is drying up. He will try to do that. That's what he tried to make Job believe. It is what he will try to make us believe. But trust the Lord. It's at the drying brook that, and there only that you will learn the deep and valuable lessons that he has to teach us beside our drying brooks about this life of faith. And so what are they? Number one lesson of life of faith. In the place of trial, in the place of the drying brook, the Lord teaches his servants the truth of his absolute sovereignty. Critical lesson in the life of faith. God's absolute sovereignty. It was unnatural for ravens to bring Elijah meat and bread. But God had the ravens at his command. He's the king of all creation. And God has the ravens and, and, and everything else under his absolute control. As Luther said, if he's not God of all, he's not God at all. Soul, the old hymn writer said, soul, forget not midst thy pains. God o'er all forever reigns. It's a vital lesson to learn. 
when God brings us to sit beside our drying brook. At times like this, Romans 8.28 becomes more than a verse on your wall or your fridge or underlined in your Bible. God makes all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. All things, even the drying brooks. Second lesson, in the place of testing, of trial, of the drying brook, the Lord teaches his servants the value of the secret place. At, at Kareth, for three years, Elijah was entirely alone with God. There he could communicate with the Lord without any distraction at all. The Lord was soon to use him in a very glorious way at the top of Mount Carmel, but, but before Carmel, there had to be a careth. Oh, we want the fire to fall. We want all those wonderful manifestations of the power of God. We want revival. But you know, so often that the case is, the fact is there's got to be a careth before there's a Carmel. The dwelling in the secret place alone with God. Just you and him. No distractions. No cell phone. No computer. No distractions. Just alone with the Lord. And the Lord has often brought us to this place. These drying brooks. To drive us to the secret place of prayer. Because what he wants is us to commune with him. I don't really think we understand how much the Lord loves and delights in the communion of his people, of every one of his children. Imagine how you would feel if any one of your children just cut you off and seldom wanted to see you or talk with you. You longed for them. Maybe they live far away and you just love them to pick up the phone and talk to you. And maybe when you call them, they don't have a whole lot of time and interest. Imagine that. Now the Lord, because he wants that communion, he knows how important it is to a life of faith that we cannot walk by faith apart from communion with him, apart from that secret place. He does those things. He brings those things to pass. And we're found by Kareth. And then and then we began to pray and call upon the Lord. John Welsh, who was a Scottish covenanter, he had that. He thought the day was ill spent, which did not see him eight to ten hours in his prayer closet. I, I I wouldn't have any clue about what that's like. Eight to ten hours. It wasn't a well-spent day if he was not eight to ten hours in prayer. David Brainerd <clears throat> had this desire in the woods of North America where snow would melt around them as he spent long seasons in prayer. The 18th century Welsh preacher Christmas Evans had it in his long and lonely journeys amid, among the, the hills of Wales. John Fletcher 
he was a uh, preaching companion of John Wesley. He had this desire. He would spend hours upon his knees with his students, pleading for the fullness of the Spirit of God until they couldn't kneel any longer. I, I, I don't set those men before you and say we can never know the growth and the grace that we need for our walk with the Lord unless we're praying like that. But oh my, that all set aside is just regularly, daily getting alone with the Lord for a substantive prayer is the need of the hour. Third lesson. At these drying brooks, these places where we're tested and tried, the Lord teaches his people what it is to trust him without any reservation. With the water getting less and less every day, Elijah might have worried about what would happen to him when it died out altogether. He just had to trust the Lord completely. He had promised he would feed him there. So even, even when there looked more and more like the wrong place to be, he had to trust God completely and stay where the Lord had put him. I think we do more trouble for ourselves, you know, when we think, oh, I've got to do something here. I've got to take myself off to find this need that I have. And Well, well, well the question you ask is, then, wait a minute. Did, did the Lord lead me to this place where I am in my life right now? did okay and unless you have a clear command from god to leave that place <laughs> you stay there and you trust him you depend upon him fourth lesson in this place of the drying brook the lord will always prove himself to be faithful count on it Great is thy faithfulness when Jeremiah thought, Jeremiah thought that God had quit being faithful. He did feed Elijah. It's true, he tried his faith, but he also rewarded it. And he guided Elijah to the next step and continued to meet his need. You know, he went to the widow of Zarephath where there's, okay, the, the brook dried up. And then the Lord said, go to Zarephath. There's a woman there's going to feed you, take care of you. God was faithful in doing what he said he would do. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. And that's a lesson. You, you know, you don't learn that until you're in a place where you've got to prove God's faithfulness. What we want is everything up front. Don't want to have to use faith. That can be so uncomfortable. Our faith being tested. We don't understand what the Lord is doing. We're just waiting. This, this is a bad situation. It's going to go from bad to worse, Lord. You must do something. But the Lord will do something when it's time to do something. You don't need to worry. You really don't. He just says, trust me. Prove me. You'll find out I am who I say I am. I will do what I said I would do. 
Final thought this morning. By our drying brooks, these places of trial, the Lord prepares us to progress to the next stage in fulfilling his purpose for us. The next stage. Kareth was a preparing ground for Zarephath and that miracle of that widow with the barrel of meal and cruise of oil. There's always the next stage, you know. For your church, there's the next stage. The next stage. These, has it been three years? I don't know, since Mr. Gallagher retired. But we're on the time period. It's all been preparation for the next stage. And the Lord has supplied the need. Maybe the brook's been drying, cause concern, but Hey, wait, wait. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. There's a next stage set before us. The lesson is plain. Don't give up in times of testing because they will not last forever. If the trial of your faith being much more precious than the gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it might be found in the praise and honor and glory of the appearing of Jesus Christ. And that's what more could we ask for than that? I, I pray that God will take that little word today and meet somebody's need in your midst, your own heart. Maybe the Lord's been speaking to you. I trust so. It's only his word that's going to make the difference. Just remember the Lord is saying, trust me. I just want you to trust me. Trust him. And all is well. May God write that word on our hearts for his name's sake. Brother, you go.